We're glad you're here. Welcome. Uh, I don't know what you guys did yesterday. Our Saturday was spent mostly outside. It was a glorious day. It was about the perfect temperature to where if you wanted to run and do activity, you didn't break a sweat. But if you sat still, it was just nice and a perfect temperature. We laid on a blanket for an hour and then went on a walk and all of the flowers are blooming and we have thousands of bulbs in our yard. And so it's just this cacophony of amazing scents and sights and, and the whole, the whole uh, neighborhood looks like that. Um, and I also realized that uh, wedding season is approaching. When we see the warmer weather and we see the flowers and we start getting those invitations coming in the mail. You know, usually with those wedding invitations, there is a dress code of some kind. There's, you know, white tie, which is do your best Downton Abbey impression. There's black tie and black tie optional, and nobody wants to be one up, so they all wear black ties anyway. There's semi-formal, which is basically the same as black tie, but wipe the snooty look off your face. There's cocktail, there's uh, smart casual, which is dressed like a European or a golfer. The list goes on. And we know how to navigate what this event is going to be like by the dress code. But have you ever gotten an invitation where it doesn't have the dress code? Now you're going, oh, what do I do now? You start looking up, okay, who else is going to be there? What do they normally wear? Or you go onto the website of the event venue and you start looking for pictures and seeing, okay, like, how nice are the people serving the food? Are they in black t-shirts or do they have bow ties? Like, you're trying to gauge, okay, how do I dress appropriately for where I'm going? And we want to do this because if you don't look the part, people start wondering if you knew what was going on. People start wondering, you know, we don't want to look overdressed and look like we're full of ourselves and we don't want to look underdressed and assume that, you know, let people assume that that was just the cleanest thing still on our floor. <laughs> so why do, we, why do we care? Because being appropriately dressed shows two things. One, that we belong here. And two, that we know how to act and operate in this environment. We know how to approach conversation. We know which hand to hold the fork and the knife in. We know how quickly to drink the beverage. I must confess, about six years ago when I applied for the worship pastor position here at FBC, um, I uh, didn't get it right, dress code wise. At the time, Megan and I were attending another great church in the valley, but it was mostly a younger crowd, very kind of casual and hip style. It was basically either the I'm single, but I'm clearly made of marriageable material. Or the, I have five kids under seven years old, don't judge me, at least I made it. <laughs> Look. So when I was asked to come lead worship here as a part of the application process, um, I just assumed, okay, so I'm going to the crusty old Baptist church, I better wear, you know, my nicest stuff. And so I dressed up way more than I normally would uh, for a Sunday. And I show up, and we're in the gym— because this room's being remodeled. We're on this temporary stage, and like half of you are in cargo shorts, jeans, and the cleanest shirt that was on the floor, because it's the dead of summer. So I, so I stood up there, and I saw, okay, I'm being silly. I, I forgot this is the Pacific Northwest. I forgot it's like September. It's still 95 degrees outside. Suddenly, I started feeling very overdressed and very silly about my presumptions of what this church was about, 
simply because of the name and previous associations I had had with Baptist churches. Of course, now I love it here. You guys are amazing. You are the farthest from crusty. You guys are full of the most hospitable, amazing, wonderful people. You preach the gospel. You love each other. This is home for us now, and we are so excited to be here. I'm sure every one of you probably has a similar story to mine, probably funnier ones. I wish Russell was here. I'm sure he'd have a better one. See, in our passage this morning, we are in Luke 7, and we find out that people 2,000 years ago were pretty much the same as us. So Jesus has just finished, if you turn to Luke 7, Jesus just finished giving his sermon on the plain, where he basically lays out what a citizen of God's kingdom looks like. The dress code, if you will, of a citizen of the kingdom of God. And the Jews are trying to reconcile all of the words of Jesus with their own preconceived notions from their own understanding of scriptures and what the rabbis had taught them of what looking like someone who is in the kingdom of God is like. Now, remember, the Jews were expecting a Messiah that was going to be a conquering king who would defeat the Romans in glorious battle, who would set up this eternal kingdom in Jerusalem, in Israel, where Jerusalem would be the hub, and he would actually sit in a throne room in the actual physical town of Jerusalem, and that all the nations around them would respect them and honor them, and they'd be this source of power and control for the whole world. And so all of these expectations, these assumptions are swirling around their heads as Jesus is flipping their world upside down with all the stuff we went through in chapter 6 about blessed are those who weep for they will be happy and then woe to the rich. That doesn't make any sense if we're going to set up a kingdom right now. So in this passage in Luke, we're going through uh, one, 7 verses 1 through 17. We have two stories that give us three aspects of the dress code, if you will of the kingdom of God. First story is a familiar one to a lot of you. It gets covered a lot in topical sermons and inspirational quotes and things like that. And with familiarity comes a danger of jumping to conclusions and missing what's going on. So let's take a moment with fresh eyes and read, starting in verse 1. After he, that is Jesus, finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. What a statement by Jesus. In fact, there's only one other place in all of Scripture where it says that Jesus marveled at something. 
It's in Mark chapter 6 where Jesus marvels at the unbelief of the Israelites in his hometown of Nazareth. So what exactly did the centurion do that made Jesus marvel, that was so significant, that stood out to him as something that marked, you know, something significant in a way that he had never seen before in his ministry and his time alive on this earth? Luke lays it out brilliantly in his writing with some clever juxtapositions of characters. So first we have the centurion. He's a man of considerable power and authority, especially in Capernaum. So he's a centurion as a Roman officer. They usually have charge of about 100 soldiers. And that was probably about the whole military force in Capernaum. It's not that big of a city. And then we have the town elders, which weren't religious leaders per se. They were probably more likely just the oldest and wisest of the men who lived in the town. And they mostly presided as judges over, you know, political affairs and judicial affairs. They may have had some religious role, but they certainly weren't, you know, trained Pharisees uh, or scribes of any kind. And then finally, we have Jesus himself, the ragtag, unorthodox traveling rabbi with this really strange message. Now, Luke clearly presents the centurion as a man of considerable character. I mean, he highly values this slave of his. Usually a man of his stature wouldn't bother with, you know, a meager slave under his rule. If he was about to die, he'd probably just let the guy die and then just go to the market and buy a new one. He has plenty of money. He has plenty of power. But the way the text is written shows that this guy is emotionally invested in caring for his slave as a person. He cares about the personhood that this guy survives, and not just for economic benefit. This guy clearly has some sort of relationship with him where he values him as a human being. It also says that he funded the building of the Jewish synagogue, um, which, is, which is pretty impressive because, I mean, he is the bastion of the Roman Empire in that area, declaring that we are the oppressors, we have control. He had the authority to treat the Jews however he wanted, and it was not uncommon for centurions to be very cruel. There's history of uh, one particular centurion that crucified over 4,000 Jews because of some uprisings and because he felt like it, and then he'd light their bodies on fire at night in his garden to provide light for his dinner parties. And there was no consequence for him doing that. So the fact that not only has the centurion done all of this for the Jewish people in Capernaum, but that he then sends a delegation to Jesus asking for help, and he doesn't presume to command the help of the, you have the ability to do this thing from God, so I command you to do this to me right now, or I'm going to kill you. If he comes before Jesus and, and requests he doesn't even go himself. He sends the Jewish rabbis because hopefully the Jewish rabbis will maybe have a greater pull with Jesus than a Roman centurion would. So the elders come to Jesus and look what they say in verse 4. They pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. He's such a good guy. He never hits his wife. He gives to the poor. He coaches his son's baseball team. He volunteers at the local food shelter. He deserves to receive this blessing from you, Lord. That's what they're saying. What does the centurion do, though? In verse 6, it says that he, he sent friends while Jesus was on the way. So at some point between asking the elders and before Jesus arrived, something struck his conscience. 
And out of respect, he sends a second delegation to communicate this to Jesus in verse 7. Uh, six and a half. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too have a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. Another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. Look at how he says the exact opposite of the elders. The elders wanted Jesus to come and perform this miracle for benevolence, to repay this guy for the good that he had done. The centurion, on the other hand, understood his place as a sinner and as an enemy of a Jewish Messiah. And he asked for mercy on behalf of a lowly servant that he deeply cares for. And what did Jesus just finish teaching right before this happened. Remember it said in 7.1, after he'd finished these sayings, what were those? That was the Beatitudes, Luke's version of them. And in uh, verse 6.32, it's barely even a page back. Jesus says this, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. So according to Jesus' words, who's compared to the sinner in the story of the centurion? It's the elders, the Jewish elders. And that makes, if you read verse 34, um, is it verse 34? No, verse 35, we didn't go that far. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. So according to Jesus, the centurion is acting like a son of the Most High. And he's the enemy, according to the Jews. And the Jewish elders are acting like the sinners. That's astounding. I mean, essentially, the elders are believing in in karma, really. And that's rampant in our world today. Modern America, Western culture is huge on karma, this pay-it-forward mentality, this you're rich, buy a coffee for the rich person behind you that was going to be able to afford the coffee anyway. And yay, you did your good deed. Karma. Maybe something good will come back to you. Someone else will buy your coffee. Meanwhile, the homeless guy is sitting outside with nothing. I wonder how often we approach God this way in our own prayers and even in the way that we operate in daily life. God, I've made it to church three out of four Sundays this month. I didn't blow up at my wife or my kids this week. I tithe 10%. I closed that browser before clicking on that link I shouldn't have. I should get something for my efforts, you know? It reminds me of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, which we'll get to in, I don't know, five years or something. But I'll refresh your memory since it'll be so long until we get to it. Uh, Luke 18, starting in verse 10. So Jesus tells this parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, you notice the similarity from the centurion, 
standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The centurion, I think, is just like this tax collector. He recognizes that he's unworthy. He recognizes who Jesus is, and he displays humility. That's the first element of the dress code of a citizen of the kingdom of God. Humility. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that grace that God gives links us to the second article of clothing in this first story. That is faith. What do you see Jesus marvel at? When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He doesn't marvel at his humility per se, although that's what he was displaying. He marvels at his faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, most of you probably know it. Classic memory verse. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. What is the gift of God in that? It's faith. Faith that saves, given graciously by God. Now, let's give the elders a little bit of credit. I mean, they did have faith that Jesus could perform the healing miracle, but based on what? It was based on the merits of the centurion. Their faith was in the centurion's works being good enough to deserve receiving something from God in return. The centurion, on the other hand, had faith in what? Not Jesus' ability, Jesus' authority. He had faith in Jesus' authority over sickness and that he could act in any way he wanted to, whether laying on of hands or just simply speaking a word, even for his enemies. I mean, that's really presumptuous of the centurion that I, an enemy of the Jews, the occupying force, would dare to go ask a religious leader who worships a God that I don't worship, that I have probably sinned against in many, many ways, idolatry, Romans worship Caesar as Lord, that's the biggest one, but probably many others, considering he was a humble man. I mean, the, the, the gall, you would think, that he had to go presume that Jesus would even consider doing this for him is astounding. So we see that faith is not hope that Jesus can perform some sort of magic tricks to make my life better somehow. Faith in Jesus being able to do something is really not that big a deal. Faith is understanding the authority of Jesus and submitting to that authority in humility. When Peter says that God gives grace to the humble, remember grace means a gift that you don't deserve. What greater grace is there than faith that saves you from eternal suffering and provides eternal life 
with God Almighty. One theologian writes this, and I love this quote. The last bastion of pride is the belief that we are the originators of our faith. The last bastion of pride is the belief that we are the originators of our faith. You see, humility and faith are inextricably linked. In humility, we come before God, understanding that we don't deserve anything. And in his grace, he gives us faith to trust in his authority, his will, his timing, his goodness, and a strengthening ability to continue on in that trajectory of humility. I would argue, as a litmus test, that the strength of your faith will directly correlate to the depth of your humility. Faith is a gift that can only be received with open hands, bended knee position, that says, you are God, I am not. I surrender to you. If you feel like your faith is weak or faltering, take a look inside yourself and, and ask the question, what am I holding on to? What am I trying to control? Where am I relying on myself to see results, to see progress? It's good to do a gut check. It's good to be aware of where you are spiritually, for sure. But if your faith is faltering, I would guess there is some unrepentant pride. So the first two elements we have are humility and faith. The third one we get from the second story, which is in Luke 7, starting in verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died and was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. By placing this little, almost side story, you would think, right after the centurion story, Luke drives the point home that the economy of the kingdom is not based on merit. Nain is this backwater, nothing town, probably no more than about 200 people. Scholars aren't even sure where it was. It was within a day's journey of Capernaum, but there's a few different locations. But if you thought that there was some sort of formula to be learned, from the centurion story, which I have heard many sermons turn that story into a formula. If you strengthen your faith, God will do miracles. I'm sure you've seen that on a commercial or two. If you think there's some way to unlock or access the power and the gifts of God, Jesus just blows that notion completely out of the water with this little story. The widow is in the midst of her grief, and she, she doesn't even ask Jesus for anything. There is no interaction whatsoever. 
Jesus literally just walks up and says, you know what? I'm going to raise this guy from the dead and I'm going to bless this helpless widow. Why would Jesus do this? I mean, he's the king of the universe. He probably has much more important things to deal with than healing this backwater town's nothing widow son. It's because he is full of compassion. He has authority to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, for whomever he wants. And in this instance, he uses to choose that authority because it is in his nature to be compassionate. Remember in Exodus 34, which is the most quoted scripture in scripture by scripture, where God reveals his character to Moses, one of my favorite passages. Exodus 34, verse 5, says this, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, that's Moses, there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. All of those things can be summed up in the single word, compassion. God loves the world that he created. He longs to see it redeemed from the clutches of death. That's what basically the entire reason of the Old Testament is to prove to us again and again and again that God is faithful. Now, there's a lot of arguments out there from atheists and others that say, oh, look at all the ways that God punished people and he... You know, I, I saw an argument recently, it blew my mind. They were arguing, and I can't remember what the passage was, that God was pro-abortion because he let babies die somewhere in the Old Testament. And that he was pro-rape because it happened in the Old Testament. That he was pro-genocide because it happened in the Old Testament. They clearly are completely missing the point. The point of the Old Testament is we are sinners. God is good, faithful, gracious, and he will not give up on the remnant. He will not give up on his people. He will not stop showing grace and mercy and compassion. So in this moment, in this backwater town that he's simply probably passing through, he sees the hopeless plight of this widow. And in that day and age, I mean, a widow with no children was basically dead. Might as well have just written him off. She had no means of being provided for, no standing socially. In all likelihood, she'd be a beggar for the rest of her life or worse. And Jesus says, nope, not today. I'm going to intervene today. Paul writes in Colossians 3:12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. The third element of the dress code of a citizen of the kingdom of God is compassion. It means entering into someone's suffering and offering hope that cannot be quenched. I mean, as amazing as this miracle was, and it is amazing, I mean, in here, Luke makes this juxtaposition when he says at the end that fear seized them all, glorifying God. They said, a great prophet has arisen among us. What they're thinking back to is both Elijah and Elisha had raised children from the dead before. And if you go back and read both of those stories, 
they do like these crazy long rituals. They, they lay on the body like eyeballs to eyeballs, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, mouth to mouth. And they do that like seven times and pace around the room and do these different things. And eventually these children come back. And also at the beginning of those, each time Elijah and Elisha pray, Lord, if, if you will, please raise this child. And then they go through this rigmarole. What does Jesus do? He walks up and just touches the beer. He doesn't pray. Why? Because he is God. He has the authority over death. All he does is say, young man, I say to you, arise. No fireworks, no fanciness, no tricks, just authority. The authority of the creator of the universe that has power over death. And amazing as this miracle was, it was still temporary. I mean, perhaps the son did outlive the mother, got to care for her for the rest of her years. I hope so. That would be great. But she still died. He still died. I don't mean to be a downer, but that's the reality. I mean, that's, that's the truth. Jesus' act of compassion here is not merely meant to make the widow's situation slightly better, or maybe even significantly better, we should argue, maybe in this passage. He does this to show his followers what they should be about. Having compassion on the lowly and the distressed. Remember again, Jesus had just finished giving the Sermon on the Plain where he said, Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. Which would almost make me think, why would you stop the woman's weeping? Because now she, she's blessed because she's weeping, right? It's because he's saying, blessed are you who experience suffering, suffering now for your humble estate. The place that you are brought to because of that suffering is prime ground for God to give his gracious gift of faith that will save you and will bring you eternal joy in his presence which is so much better than whatever answered prayer you could think up right now. And I know plenty of you are in significant situations or have had incredible loss. I'm not trying to downplay any of that. But it's about perspective. Compassion is about perspective. We show people compassion not because we think we're actually going to fix their situation now because we hope to show them the light of the gospel and that we can fix their eternal situation by the grace of God. Now, for those of us who aren't suffering, it means going out of our way to enter into others' suffering, coming alongside those who are. And if you don't think anyone's suffering in your life, you're either not paying attention or you're not asking the right questions. I know Church has got a bad rap for being the place where you leave everything at the door. You walk in, put on your smiley face. Everything's great. Don't bring up that argument. And then you get back in the van and everything starts up again. I don't think this church is very much that way. But I just got to say it. Because that is sometimes the assumption. Sometimes we put that into the dress code of the church. Is have your stuff together. Show everybody that Jesus is working in your life by the progress you have, not by the brokenness that he is still 
working on. Because nobody wants to talk about that. That's not fun. I want to talk about the person that I healed. I want to talk about the prayer that I prayed so mightily that I changed God's mind and he had to answer me because of my eloquent words. Oh, Pharisee. And if you are somebody who's suffering today, whether it's physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual warfare, the dark night of the soul, whatever it happens to be, I want you to be encouraged by this passage to know that this amazing God knows your pain and your suffering more than you could imagine. I don't know why he hasn't intervened in your particular situation, or I don't know why he didn't intervene in the past, but I know it's probably about something way bigger than you. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. I don't have it on the screen, but I'll read it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the Father of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort, comfort we ourselves receive from God. If you are a believer today, your trial is not about you. Well, it may be about you in the regard that they're trying, God's trying to mold you. But I love the way that God always ends up using things for so much more than what we think they're about. I know it's not a, I know it's not a massive suffering, so I don't want to overstate um, Megan and I's story, but you know, we tried for a, a few years to get pregnant and had some struggles, and we had to wrestle with those doubts. Is this going to be a thing that's actually going to be possible for us? By the grace of God, he chose to provide that for us, and we're eternally grateful. But even that just story of, of a momentary, very momentary struggle, uh, a friend of ours, a youth pastor friend of ours, had said that he's told that story to over 10 different couples and families that have encouraged them in all kinds of other situations. And, and that's amazing, because I don't think it's that big of a deal. Okay, so we had some doubt for a couple of years, and then God decided to answer that doubt, with children. We were thankful, and now it's something I don't even think about anymore. And yet, this little story of comparatively minor suffering has been used to bless a whole bunch of people. It's always so much more than just you. So, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we are to be clothed in humility, in faith, and in compassion. A few thoughts on these three articles of the dress code of the kingdom of God to close. I want to be sure that you understand that humility is not humiliation. You are not a lowly worm saved by God. Worm theology has no mission, no partnership with God, no end goal. Now you're just a worm who gets to live in awe of God and continually be reminded of how terrible you are, or at least how terrible you used to be. That's just wrong, guys. In Christ, you are new creation. Humility is not humiliation, self-destruction, self-loathing. Humility is acknowledging God's authority and submitting yourself in obedience to his will as you pursue partnering with the indwelt Holy Spirit in loving and serving people and sharing the gospel, not taking credit for the results, but giving all glory to God. 
There's a lot of misconceptions about faith running around church circles today. Faith isn't something that you muster up in order to unlock spiritual powers. Faith is the gift of God to the humble to strengthen their resolve to follow him through trial and difficulty to the very end. We absolutely should be asking for more faith. We should be more like our Pentecostal brothers and continually asking, Lord, increase our faith. Give me more faith. But it's not so we can unlock something. The prayer should look more something like, Lord, forgive me of my pride so that my humility may increase and you may give me a greater gift of faith. And he does offer those through trials and difficulties. So persevere wherever you are because that's how faith grows. And finally, compassion. Because we are new creations, we are not worms. We are made in the likeness of Jesus and we should look and act like him. And he was all about serving others. In your own suffering, ask God to use it to mold and shape you into the likeness of Christ and hopefully give you open doors to show others gospel compassion. And if you're not suffering, try letting yourself be inconvenienced by others. Don't be in such a rush that you can't stop and listen to someone's story. Humble yourself before God and be willing to be the hands and the feet of Jesus to the broken, the worn down, and the hopeless. Will you join me as we pray? Lord, I thank you that through these seemingly small stories, you give us hope. You give us the roadmap for looking like Jesus, for looking like a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, which you have declared that we are, how to operate in the royal priesthood of believers that you have declared us. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to walk before you in humility that doesn't beat us down, but that acknowledges your authority. Help us to have faith, Lord. Increase our faith every single day. Keep us reliant on you. Take away the things from us that we cling to, that give us some sort of sense that we have control, we have authoritative pull in our life. Help us surrender that to you, to always acknowledge your authority. Lord, give us compassion. Give us eyes that see, ears that hear, that we may be aware of the orphan, the widow, the lowly, the forgotten. Give us the eyes of Jesus to go to those backwater places and see what you see. Be moved the way your heart is moved to love and to show compassion that we have been shown by Jesus at the cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen.